This is KMTT, and this is Ezebit, and today is Ere Shabbat Kodesh, Bashad Vayichi, and we have a special program for Ere Shabbat. I want to, in the beginning, mention that a few people have pointed out to me that the opening line of this program, when I say, this is KMTT, reminds them of Walter Cronkite broadcasting from London during the Brits. I think the person who told me that meant it as a criticism. Actually, I took it as a compliment. However, I would be broadcasting with the clarity of Walter Cronkite from London during the Brits. And if you were aware of some of the difficulties we've had in getting these programs out on time, the situation isn't all that different. Secondly, a number of people have written and I'm very thankful for this, about the quality of the sound. And I agree. The quality of the sound is not as good as it should be, and we're going to make efforts in the near future to improve it, which will involve buying different equipment. And so, please bear with us in the meantime. And we do hope, I'm sure, that in the near future, we will make great strides in making the uh, voice clearer, sound better, and the general experience should be more enjoyable. This week's Pasha Pasad Ve'ichi begins uh, describing the end of Yaakov's life. And there's a medrash which Rashi quotes in the very beginning of the Pasha, where the medrash asks why the first section, the first Pasha, what we call a, uh, a section of the reading, is Stuma. There are two different kinds of Parshiyot in the Torah. Uh, the way the Torah is written, it's divided into small sections. Basically, you would think of them as being the paragraph, the paragraphs. And there are two kinds. There are Stumot and Ptuchot, which is a different way of writing them. A uh, Stuma means closed and Ptucha means open. So the first Pasha is a Pasha Stuma. The Medrash asks why. The Medrash gives the answer, a homiletic answer, that Yaakov is dying, he's about to die, and when Yaakov died, that when Yaakov died, the eyes and the hearts of the Jews were closed, were sealed, because of the subjugation, in other words, the slavery in Egypt. So all the commentators ask, it's a very lovely idea, but it's not true, because elsewhere the major states that the actual enslavement and subjugation in Egypt did not begin until the last of the sons of Yaakov, the last of the brothers, died. Which is more or less the implication of the verse in the beginning of Pashat Shmot that says, Vayamot Yosef achol echav achol Yosef and all his brothers died in all of that generation. And then, Uvenei Yisrael, Paru v'Rabu, Uvenei Yisrael became many, and then, Vayakom Melech Hadash HaMetzayim, a new king arose, and then the beginning of the subjugation begins. So, since the Subjugation in Egypt did not begin until after the last of the sons of Yaakov died. How can the Medrash said that the first section of Pashat Ve'echi is Stuma, is closed because when Yaakov died, the hearts and uh, uh, eyes of the Jewish people, the Jews in Egypt, uh, were closed, were, were rocked up, were sealed. The Svatimet gives a very, very interesting answer. 
he says that it's true that the actual enslavement did not begin until the last of the sons of Yaakov died. However, that's the physical enslavement. But spiritual enslavement began as soon as Yaakov died. That sounds like a sort of a facile kind of answer. What does it mean, spiritual enslavement? So the Spatanus explains. When Yaakov dies, the, the root that the sons of Yaakov had in the experience and the teaching and the guidance of Yaakov Avinu, as he was one of the forefathers, really ended. And they were left in Egypt. And they began to think of themselves as living in Egypt. However, there was no enslavement yet. They were living well. Says the Spathemis, that's precisely the situation they were talking about. Because they were living in exile. They were living in Egypt. They were living in the land which is, whether they're working hard or not, a land of bondage and exile and subjugation. But they think they're living well because they're living in Eretz Goshen. They have their sheep. They have their prosperity. Nobody's bothering them. And that's precisely what it means that their eyes and their hearts were sealed. If they were working hard, we wouldn't say their eyes and their hearts were sealed. We would say their bodies are broken. But the Pasha is stuma, is sealed, because when Yaakov died, the vision and the understanding of the Jews, of the sons of Yaakov and the children of Yaakov, became sealed off, that they only saw their external conditions, the wealth and the prosperity of their lives in Egypt, and were unaware of the fact that Yaakov's death had indeed left them orphaned and divorced from the connection to the spiritual fire, the spiritual front that they had originally had when they lived in Eretz Israel. So that's the Spartan, that that's the meaning of Galut, that's the meaning of exile. The real spiritual meaning of exile is not necessarily oppression, of which there were of course many years as well, but the permanent spiritual condition of exile is seeing how prosperous and how well off we're doing under the physical conditions that are prevalent and missing how dry, desiccated, and divorced and cut off our lives are from the spiritual foundations that should that should exist. Today we have the honor for a guest sicha, a guest discourse for Shabbat Bayechi of the Rosh Yeshiva Moreno Harav Aaron Lichtenstein who will be giving a sicha it is uh, in honor of the beginning, our first, the end of our first week of KMTT and for Pasat Vayechi. Harav Dachmiste. Last week's Tarsha, Tarsha Zayigash, we read that after the meeting of Yosef and his brothers, he sent them off to Eretz Canaan, back to meet with Yaakov and appear for the re-entry into Egypt. The Pasuk is not totally clear to just what kind of regions we're talking about. It might be its possible source and its possible character. Or fear, anxiety, turmoil, or some would have it possible retrospective recrimination 
with regards to the question of who would be responsible for Yosef's Bechira in the first place. Rashi cites some of these, but the first that he quotes, Antitas Kubidvah Lacha, Source for this is Gemara and Tainis, the Fudan and Beis. Whereas, however, in Rashi it appears an isolated comment, in the Gemara there's a broader context. Which is relevant to our learning and our learning habits. Having quoted this, Mamba Rabbalazo, the Mordor continues, Amy, Rama Rabbalazo, Rabbalazo, Shneitim Yecha Hanush, Malchim Baderech, Vainbin and Divrei Torah, Uyuni Saref, Shinema, Vayim Malchim, Vedaber, Vinevech Vesh, Vesh, they were saved from possible destruction because the Dibu which Chazal interpreted to mean Dibu in Divrei Teira. Otherwise, they would have been destroyed. Clearly, the message is that people are walking together. They should indeed be Sasev Zaralacha with all that entails. Well, responds no it is a, a question of learning to repeat what one has learned or to inculcate wrong knowledge. That would be good even if people are going by derech. The uni, the analytical depth, this becomes more engaging, more demanding, a source of possible controversy, confrontation, to distraction, to division of interest. As far as that's concerned, this is not advisable, not recommended, I note. This is one of the sources in Chazal for distinction which, which we're very familiar with in our own learning climate. And this is the division between learning Pekius and learning Be'ayu. The Mikras is the equivalent of Pekius, really, in my analytic mode, plumbing in depth, loving the high skill, this corresponds to the term which we employ as well in uni. It's a very distinction for us, and it has at times ramifications, even halacha and chazal. Here we don't have quite a halacha, but a kind of recommendation which Yosef had given in a more vein of more divragade. Elsewhere, the Gemara and Sukkot of Kofres discusses whether a person, what kind of activities are to be engaged in within the suke and which outside of it. The question comes up with God of Talmatayla. I don't know differentiates. If it's the Migras, when it kills, at a more superficial level, absorption of information, the acquisition of knowledge, expansion of the bounds of one's knowledge, that can be done in the suke. It's not so tiring, not so demanding, not so challenging. However, the uni, that probably requires a more comfortable, a more secure climate of the home, and that can, may be done, perhaps it should be done, within its, its confines. What is clear, though, in both Gemara's, is the rather with some distinction of the uni, 
value of the Mikras is recognized to the point that within the context of the Gemara, which we open the Gemara in Tainis, people who have the ability to learn while traveling don't do so, are subject to possible threats, dangers, etc., etc. And this is the message for those of us, and in the modern world, very times it's a daily occurrence, we engage in the Holich Baderech, hopefully without Rogers, but we need to concentrate the focus of what we're doing. What the Gemara says is, you're driving, your attention cannot be distracted, focused on the road, but the Mikras, to absorb knowledge, to gather information, that certainly is possible, desirable, requisite, within the context of the driving, the traveling, as well. The knowledge we acquire while on the move, while traveling, contributes to our to the expanse of knowledge that we have and especially significance not only at the level of Mikras, but at the level of the Uni as well. One of the things that every serious Bintera experiences and understands is that to learn the Eden properly is to have a firm infrastructure, a firm base, hopefully an expansive base, a fundamental knowledge, facts, concepts, ideas which could be a Employed, applied within each studio that a person learns. In this respect, we would only for its contribution to the quality of our learning and to its scope, the Lamigas which we do, the Lech Chabaderech, would in itself be valuable. However, it's significant in other respects as well. Not only with reference to our cognitive approach experience of learning, but with regard to our existential involvement and engagement with regard to learning. There's at others which are all familiar. Shabbat Yomel, Aset Oretchai Keva. The two which was described to Rashi and printed under his name, Mazadas, cites two not only different, not only diverse, but seemingly contradictory explanations for what making Oretchai Keva is. I quote, First shot, in the face and in the teeth, if you will, of what's related to us, from all this comment of the Gemara Shabbos, the Flamadalif, one of the six questions that first is asked to you, Nadine, with Kavati Timatova, and it's the first one, if I remember correctly. In face of that, Rashi says, Shammai's counsel is, no take away Timatova. But, this is intended not to minimize the significance and scope of learning, rather to maximize it. So, first, what Shammai says is, you don't have designated times, come tell us that's just a little piece of your life and of your day. That we should develop it, we should mold it, we should encompass it, provide parameters, and within those parameters you find time for all kinds of other activities. And maybe it will be that the other activities will 
And it required much more time than time you have to learn. But conceptually, essentially, your commitment to learning is beyond your commitment to other elements. Don't make Tarakeva just something which is designated time, part of your schedule, a period as it were. It's not a period, it's a developing time dimension. It's the first shot. Second shot, do set aside designated time. That, as I indicated, seems to directly counter the first piece of advice and in line with the Mother and Shabbos. The truth, however, I think that there is no contradiction here between the two shotting. The practical playing, indeed, the important because they eat in the remote. So the learning becomes not simply something that is random. Not only that, we should engage when we haven't uh, spare time, no other commitments, no other obligations, no other direct competing interests. But it becomes something which is fixed, an integral part of one's day, and therefore integral part of oneself. That's the second shot. And then the alternative to the creating Latora is leaving it in an almost happenstance manner element of fortune, opportunity, not being designated and defined as an integral part of what's being. To that, we certainly prefer to try to that to our four-parking, five-parking, whatever one can manage within the limits of his commitments and his needs. First shot, Shlotikulotim Latoa establishes doesn't relate to establishing the floor, but rather to whether it's a shadow ceiling. And what this shot says in effect, don't confine by defining. Don't limit by establishing bounds. But conceive of Tamatera, even though it's understood, practically speaking, you don't learn the whole day. Conceive of Tamatera is something which is challenging, which is consuming which helps to define the totality of your existence in the context of the totality of your commitment. So when he was engaged in learning Melech Tchabaderech, in effect, I think if he drives regularly, on one hand, it's an expression that the learning is not confined to a particular context, to a particular place, to a particular locus. It's not just a specific period designated as such, even when you're away, en route, not within your immediate environment in your normal context, either out of work or out of home, but still you're in touch with commentary related to it, because it's part of what envelops your total being. On the other hand, you carry an element of regularity to it, four parts and five parts, you know how large you need to relish this Chadrashi has in mind, but person can know he has a certain root, he's learning on root, be it at the level of the Mikras, can be regular, routinized, enjoying the benefits on the one hand, the being fixed and definite, on the other hand, conceptually and existentially, part of what's encompassing, one developing kind of existence. 
that is an expression of a person being a bintaya, and something which helps to mold him ever further as a bintaya. You have been listening to Harav Aaron Lichtenstein. We'd like to thank Aaron for his welcoming message to KMTT and for the Sikha for Pashad Vayichi. And now for the Halakha Yomit. Yesterday in the Halakha Yomit, I quoted the Ma'amar of Rabbi Yochanan from the Gemara in Vachot of Tetzav, who said, Misha Rutsa Lekabel Alav Om Machut Shemaim Shlema, person who wishes to accept upon himself the fullness, completely, in perfection, the oak of the heavenly kingdom, should do the following five things. Yifneh, Yitav Yadav, Yemech Tfirin, Yikrak Kriyashma, V'yitpareh. He should uh, cleanse himself, should wash his hands, he should put on Tfirin, and then he says, Kriyashma, and praise. He says Shmanesse. Conspicuous in the absence from that list is something which I think we would have associated automatically with the idea expressed in the list. Among other things, I said yesterday that putting on Tfilin is like the uniform. The person says that he's a servant of God and wishes to serve God the King, so he has to dress in the proper manner. That's putting on the signs, the, the, the regular uniform of the servant of the king, which was Tfilin. I think all of us would have, if it had been up to us, have written Talit, and Tzitzit, instead of Tfilin, or together with Tfilin. And Tzitzit is not mentioned in that Gemara. It doesn't say that one should be wearing a Talit when one says Kriyatshma and one doesn't. I think the reason why it's left out is obvious. Interestingly enough, the Zohar has a parallel statement to that of the Gemara about Tzitzit rather than, rather than Tfilin. In another Gemara, which I quoted yesterday, the Gemara says specifically about Kriyatshma, that he who reads Kriyatshma is not wearing Tfilin, and he read Eidut Sheka, to read the verse in Kriyatshma, that one should wear Tfilin. And at the same time, not to have Tfilin on, is like giving false testimony. That's why you make a, a special effort not to say Kriyatshma without Tzolim. So the Zohar has the same statement about Tzitzit. That one who reads Kriyatshma and is not wearing Tzitzit, he's giving false testimony. The logic is clear. Just as there's a verse in Kriyatshma that says that one must wear Tzolim, and if you read it without wearing Tzolim, you're basically being a hypocrite. Later on, the last section of Kriyatshma is Pashat Tzitzit, and you read a Pasuk saying that you should have Tzitzit. To read that Pasuk and not wear Tzitzit would be exactly the same thing. We would call it hypocrisy. The Lashon Shel Chachamim, the language of Chachamim, is that it's Me'id Eidut Sheka. But the Gemara doesn't mention Tzitzit. And I think there's a clear difference between Tzitzit and Tzitzit. Namely, that Tzitzit is indeed an obligation. A Jew is supposed to wear Tzitzit. The Torah doesn't say when, doesn't say if you want to, it says you're supposed to wear tefillin. And therefore, at least you should wear tefillin when reading Kriyat Shema. But tzitzit you don't actually have to wear. You only have to wear tzitzit if you have a garment that is obligated in tzitzit, namely four-cornered garment. In ancient times, your standard garment was a four-cornered garment. When you went out, you took a cloak and you wrapped yourself in it 
cloak was a rectangular piece of cloth. So like a Roman toga. And that's called a talit. Talit's not a, a, a technical religious term. It has nothing to do with davening. A talit was something which people wore. Nowadays, nobody wears normally four-cornered garments. And therefore, we basically invented artificially a fourth-cornered garment, which we call a talit, and it exists only in, in shul, in a synagogue, from which derives the rather strange English translation for talit as a prayer shawl. But that's not what the word meant to chazal, it meant merely a, a shawl, or a cloak. There is a Avudraham who says that in the Pasuk of Tzitzit, it says, Pasuk of Tzitzit, and it says, Lidovotan, for their generations. Yes, what does it mean for their generations? All mitzvot are for all generations. So the Avudraham suggests that maybe the Pasuk is telling you that even when there'll be a time when you won't naturally or normally have a four-cornered garment, and therefore you have no absolute obligation to put tzitzit on any garment at all, you should do it anyhow. You should do what we do. Invent, artificially construct a four-cornered garment because otherwise the mitzvah will disappear. It's a nice idea. The Yudhujan says it, but strictly, al-pidin, in halacha, one doesn't have to wear a talit. One has to wear tzitzit if one has a talit, a four-cornered garment. One doesn't have to wear a talit. So I think the Gemara is saying that he who wants to accept the oak of, of heaven has to fulfill obligations, but tzitzit is not an obligation. The Zohar adds tzitzit. It may not be obligatory, but it's still the way you should look, more, along, along, more or less along the lines of the, of the Avudraham. I think it all derives from the Gemara in Menachot that describes one of the Amoraim who in the summertime was not wearing tzitzit. It was hot. He was wearing only light light clothing, which didn't require tzitzit. And he met Eliyahu Navi. And Eliyahu expressed his anger, his disapproval of him. So he said to Eliyahu, what's the problem? He said, because you're not wearing tzitzit. He said, but I don't have to wear tzitzit. There's no such obligation. Eliyahu said to him, be'idam be'rigza me'anshi. That is true, you're right. There is no chiyot to wear tzitzit if you don't have the proper, the proper garment. But at times of anger, at a time of some sort of natural disaster, when the attribute of justice is, is present in the world. There's a hurricane, there's a war, and people are being punished, but the tzaddikim would be saved. If you're not wearing tzitzit, you won't be saved. In other words, it's not an obligation, but it's definitely a very, very good thing. And you can't get punished for it as a crime, but it doesn't mean you're going to be saved. You're not going to get a reward. You're not going to be picked out as being someone special if you ignore it. So a Jew should have tzitzit. That apparently is the idea, which, as expressed by the Bajahan, is expressed in the Zohar as a requirement that once you have tzitzit during, during Kriyatshma. Okay, but again, the Gemara doesn't mention it. And there is another minhag, which I think we've all seen, that during Kriyatshma one takes the tzitzit in the hand. The latest development of it is that you should kiss the tzitzit. This is based on a Hagaot, my Maniot, who quotes a Medrash, Medrash uh, Shochatov. The Medrash describes David HaMelech saying to God, you know, all of my limbs do mitzvot. And then there's a list of the different mitzvot. He says, for instance, my right hand ties tefillin. Tefillin one on his left hand, and his right hand ties the tefillin on. I says, and my left hand holds tzitzit to my heart during Kriyatshma. So, the Haggad Aranyad divides, apparently, there's no other source for this, it's not mentioned in any place in the Gemara, but 
apparently uh, there is a mitzvah or some sort of a idea that one should be holding the tzitzit to one's heart during the recitation of Kriyashma. It doesn't say during the reading of the Pashat tzitzit at the end of Kriyashma. It says during Kriyashma itself. The idea, think of it in different ways, but they can make their own suggestion. I think the idea that since tzitzit represents all mitzvot Torah, pressing the mitzvot of the Torah to one's heart during Kriyashma means accepting the yoke of heaven, accepting God's rule, accepting the yoke of himself, and demonstrating it in a, in a practical, in a practical manner. At the basis of this Hagarot Mamaniyot, one has the Tzavachah quoted in Shulchan Aruch, that one should hold the tzitzit in one's hand, pressed to one's heart during the reading of Kriyatshma. Question that arises is how many tzitzit to hold. Common meaning is to hold all four. However, there is a problem with that. Uh, the Gemara states that tzitzit are normally worn two in front and two in the back. It doesn't say in the Gemara in any place that you have to do it that way. But there's a, it's an Agadah that says that when someone was tzitzit, he's surrounded by mitzvot because there's two in front and two in the back. Some Polskim, uh most commonly the Ramah, has taken that to be a halachic requirement. The Ramah uses this idea that tzitzit are two in the front and two in the back to exempt from tzitzit a garment that indeed has four corners but they're all in the front. Of which an example would be a jacket. A suit jacket, if the corners are not rounded off, you have two corners in the front and the bottom and two corners up on top where the collar is. And according to the Ramah, the reason why you don't have tzitzit on your suit jacket is because it isn't Two in the back, two in the front, all four corners are in the front. So he takes this idea expressed only very generally as a, as a philosophic idea in, in, uh, in, in, in Chazal and says, no, it has to be that way and if it doesn't appear that way, there's no mitzvah. On that basis, the Santos said you shouldn't take all four tzitzit and draw them in front of you and hold them to your heart because by doing so you're annulling, you're undermining the very mitzvah of tzitzit itself and therefore it would be better to simply hold two tzitzit, which represents the idea of tzitzit, press them to your heart, and leave the other two behind. The common meaning is to hold all four, but the gra and other people said one should only hold two. We are a little bit rushed for time today, and therefore we're going to have to end a little bit earlier than usual. I'd like to say Shabbat Shalom. And Kol Tov, this is Ezra Beck speaking from Gush Etzion. Kimitzion Tetzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim Shabbat Shalom